Welcome to BardCast 59. I'm Chad Myers. And I am Elaine Enns. It's Memorial Day 2022. A hundred years ago, the world was recovering from an earlier pandemic, as we are today. A hundred years ago, Russia was fighting a bloody war in Ukraine, one that displaced and disenfranchised many of Elaine's ancestors in Ukraine. So it's a good time to remember. And we have with us as our guest on today's podcast, Rosemarie Berger. Rose is senior editor at Sojourners Magazine, a veteran journalist and activist, someone deeply involved in the Catholic nonviolent movement around the world. And Rose, welcome to the BartCast and to this podcast. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Ted, Elaine. You uh, really are literally 48 hours off the plane, uh, and so all these stories are very much brimming in you. You just returned from Ukraine and Poland on a peacemaking delegation, but before we get into that, uh, this was not your first um, peacemaking delegation. You've, uh, you've done these kinds of things in war zones before. Uh, tell folks uh, some of what you've done in the past. Some, some of the places that I have gone before have been um, the West Bank and, and Israel in the mid-80s, um, and Northern Ireland, especially Belfast and Derry, um, and later on El Salvador and uh, Colombia, and then probably the most significant time was in Bosnia and Kosovo during the uh, genocidal wars there. Um, and of course, uh, I spent 35 years in inner city Washington, D.C., uh, where there also were pretty critical conflicts. So you, um, it was in part based on this experience that you were invited to participate in a new peacemaking effort in this awful, excruciating war that is happening now in Ukraine. And Rose, we are just so grateful for you to have been a part of this um, delegation. And can you go ahead and tell us um, who invited uh, this delegation? What kind of groups were involved? How, how did the planning go? How did it all come together? Yeah, thank you. I, the war was being, there was a build up to the war um, early this year. A lot of the uh, humanitarian aid agencies were giving signals that um, that Mr. Putin might be taking military action against Ukraine, uh, but most politicians didn't think it would happen, mm. um, that the cost to Putin would be too high. Uh, however, on February 21st, he announced that uh, that he was going to recognize the independence of certain sections of, of Ukraine. And with that announcement, um, he would launch a special military action in order to, quote unquote, recover those sections of Ukraine that he would like to uh, annex into Russia. Um, on February 24th, he uh, officially signed the documents for the special military action um, 
and within hours there were missile strikes on on Kiev, and there were a group of us uh, who were part of the Catholic Nonviolence Initiative who began talking together about how we could get a religious delegation of peacemakers into Ukraine um, and what the, what our purpose would be and how how effective that could be. And we were looking for partners, uh, particularly in the region, and uh, sort of stumbled upon a, a Polish group that was also organizing uh, a religious delegation, hope, trying to get a delegation into Kiev. And um, so we began partnering together. And uh, our particular response was to the mayor of Kiev's call to have religious leaders, um, international religious leaders from around the world, come together and, and meet in, in Kiev and uh, establish a prayer presence for peace there in that city. So two, two months later, uh, May the 24th, we were able to bring a religious delegation um, into the city of into the city of Kiev. And what were the who were the different faith groups uh, that were a part of that? Yeah, that was part of the delight of this delegation is it, it came together very quickly on the one hand because we were waiting for uh, dates from the Ukrainian government that they felt like would work uh, for them. So we had uh, we had people from uh, the United Kingdom and from Italy, from the United States and from Poland. And then we had uh, members, leading, leading representatives of Islam, uh, two imams were with us. Um, uh, the Archbishop, uh, sorry, the Bishop uh, Joe Wells um, of the Anglican Church of England, uh, and then a Jewish rabbi from Poland, um, as well as a, a number of other um, active lay leaders and other religious leaders representing a variety of versions of Christianity, particularly from one I wanted to mention is May Cannon. Reverend May Cannon was with us, who was from the Evangelical Covenant Church. Mm -hmm. So while we had several Catholics in our mix and, and Anglicans, it was nice to have a representative from the Evangelical yeah. community. That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, Earlier, you spoke about a clash of cultural visions that is kind of the backdrop um, of this war between Ukraine and Russia. And, and so can you tell us what you mean by that? The, as I mentioned earlier, the initiation of this delegation was Mayor Klitschko, the mayor of, of Kiev, uh, in, in early March, put out a... a a video on it on Twitter um, really extending an, an invitation for the world's religious leaders to, co to come to Kiev uh, to make Kiev a city of spirituality and peace but what we learned there is that Kiev is known historically as a city of spirituality and peace a mm. city where different faiths live together uh, work together um, celebrate together and create a very robust and dynamic intercultural, interreligious uh, uh, culture. And because because Kiev is on the sort of on the borderline between the east and the west, 
because it's historically been a trade route. It's just a very diverse cultural, uh, diversely cultural city, diverse, cult culturally diverse city. Um, and so I think really what the mayor was, was asking was for religious leaders to come to Kiev to help protect and maintain the strength of that diversity. And Ukraine is known as a, a, a place of, of, you know, many, many cultures living together and wants to preserve that heritage. Uh, part of what is under attack at this, at this juncture is that Mr. Putin is really operating out of a worldview that is known there as Ruski Mir, uh, which, you know, an equivalent might be uh, Pax Romana or Pax Americana, uh, except that in the case of Russia, it's really a, a cultural uh, imperialism where there is a, a, a movement to displace anyone who is not uh, ethnically Russian um, and to move ethnic Russians into these places. So there's, so there really is a, a genocidal campaign to drive Ukrainians out of Ukraine and to uh, move ethnic Russians into as much of Ukraine as, as, they can, as they can succeed in taking. And that's the same process that, uh, that Putin is taking in Crimea um, and in many of the surrounding surrounding states. So in in the dominant media in North America, we get a lot about the geopolitical uh, landscape of this conflict. And we hear that uh, Putin is upset that Ukraine is looking west and afraid of alliances with NATO. And Biden is talking about strengthening Ukraine's um, Western orientation, but you're really telling us that um, a, a deeper underpinning here is the struggle not between a Western-oriented Ukraine, but its own unique multicultural history, uh, and and that is what is really under under attack as well. Yeah, I think I think that's right. There's a, a strong desire as part of this uh, Ruski Mir ideology to. Uh, have a very narrow and traditional uh, and single ethnicity understanding of family life, of church life, um, of social life to make it uh, basically an ethnically pure uh, white, white supremacist, we would say, uh, uh, culture, and um, which is absolutely antithetical to the history of Ukraine and the, and the, diversity of religions and cultures and people that you that Ukraine prides itself uh, in as and Ukraine really prides itself in being a place where many many groups can come together and live together peaceably obviously this is not um, part of the story that's getting out in the Western press and we're so appreciative that you and your delegation have uh, had this experience and this insight we want to um, switch here and, and allow you to talk about some snapshots of your uh, time. And um, in order to uh, introduce one of them, I want to turn to Elaine. Um, many of you listeners know that uh, Elaine has ancestral history in, in Ukraine and um, uh, 
in sending you off on this uh, delegation uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, Elaine, you handed uh, a very special uh, talisman to, to Rose. Tell us that story. Well, you know, you're naming you're naming places like Crimea and Kiev, and uh, 12 years ago I was there, and Crimea is where my paternal grandmother Ents um, was from. So I spent time in Crimea, and I spent time going up the Dnieper River, and ended our our time in Kiev. Um, and during this trip, we went, uh, Kortitsa is the first settlement of Mennonites in the 1780s in Ukraine. And there was a beautiful tree, and the Mennonites, it, that tree was there long before the Mennonites got there, but they called it the Alta Eicha, the ancient or the old oak. And uh, they estimate it, it's over 800 years old, and I'm not sure if it is still standing, but while I was there, I collected a few acorns. There were a number of things I tried to bring back from Ukraine, and that was one, those three acorns. And so I was so grateful uh, that you are making, you were making this trip um, that I wanted to give my last acorn from the Alta Eicha to you. Um, and I had some words around, you know, your desire to be planting peace and maybe with this seed, this acorn, that could be a part of that. And then you did something with it. And I would love to hear that story. <laughs> yeah, it was, um, it was so delightful to have that acorn in my pocket and just be looking for where it would end up. Mm. Um, and when we traveled to Irpin and through uh, Bucha, where there have been really atrocious war crimes. Um, and we traveled to the Caritas Center there, well, in two locations. Um, in one location, we were, we were visiting a, a uh, Greek Orthodox church where uh, the community of 30 people had lived in the basement for two weeks while the Russian and Ukrainian forces fought over their heads, um, just praying that this community in the basement would not be discovered um, for fear of what would happen to them if the Russian forces found them. Um, but one story we heard there was that a missile had been aimed toward, was heading toward the church, this new beautiful Orthodox church that they had, they haven't quite finished building, and that it was actually the trees um, near the buildings that, that sort of diverted the missile. And so the, it hit the tops of the trees and then it uh, crashed into the edge of the priest's house rather than destroying the church. And so I just had that concept in my mind that the trees really mm. protected the church. Um, and then we went from there a few blocks away to the Caritas Center, which is a, a major site now for humanitarian aid and food distribution. Um, and there, the Caritas Kiev offices uh, had been there at, at this site, and their building early in the war was bombed, and several of their staff were, were killed. Mm. Um, but it's on a 
it's on a property that, you know, maybe for us would be like a retreat center. It had several buildings and several outdoor sleeping areas and campfire areas and beautiful trees and park, uh, park-like environment. Um, now it was filled with military tents that are filled with humanitarian aid. And it's a place where a lot of the, um, the elderly who couldn't leave, um, couldn't leave the area, uh, have come, come to live. Um, but in that park-like place, there too, the trees had been destroyed by shelling. They were really just sort of splintered. Um, and then the ones that remained, some, many of them had been cut down and, and planed into planks uh, to sort of help with some of the reconstruction of some of the buildings. Um, so it just seemed like when I saw those trees there and heard the stories of the trees that this that this acorn that you had given me wanted to come home to that place. Mm -hmm. um, so I was delighted to be able to offer it to the woman who's really the community leader there. She was somebody, she's an elder, she had lost everything, um, and she was pouring all of her energy into the community organizing to serve her community. And so I presented it to her, I told her the story of De Alta Aika, um, and asked if we could plant it there and she took it and she said yes we can plant it but I will plant it and we will plant it as a community uh, later um, and we will give it a proper ceremony and now I just said to her I want this is from a very ancient oak and I want you to plant it here so that it can grow to be as strong and resilient as the Ukrainian people that we have met on this trip mm -hmm. and she was she was just very she was very grateful and she had tears in her eyes I had tears in my eyes but you know so hopefully the oak will get uh, planted and, and watered oh, that is beautiful and you have I'm sure so many stories of the beautiful people the powerful people that you met um, is there another story that you would want to share with us yeah, I think there are, there's two. One, one's maybe a little bit more general, but part of the reason for having a religious delegation is, one, because our, our, our faiths motivate us toward peace. So we need to take actions for peace. Um, and that was part of this delegation. But the other piece of that is that in times of crisis, it's often the religious leaders and the religious communities who who respond and who are doing a bulk of the work of uh, addressing the crisis. And often those religious leaders are being asked to do things that they're not used to doing. You know, the most stressful thing in an archbishop's day is maybe that he's gonna be late to a meeting. <laughs> um, but now, you know, now the archbishop is driving 20 hours to get humanitarian aid, is listening to people who have been through um, you know, brutal abuse who are they're comforting uh, women who've lost their husbands and, and sons in the military. Um, and so part of a religious delegation to religious leaders is to offer some care and comfort to them as they are trying to carry the, the suffering of their people. Um, but also at the Caritas Center, we met, uh, we met a few um, very, very elderly women, um, particularly one whose name was Maya, uh, and she was 92. And she, I don't know if she had been born or as a one or two year old, 
she had been in one of the Nazi death camps and uh, her entire family was killed. Um, and so she was sort of lamenting and identifying that she, as a child, she was alone. Um, and now at the end of her mm -hmm. life, uh, she was also alone, um, but that she had this community here with her at the Caritas Center that was really valuable to her. But these, you know, the, these women, and particularly Maya, so survived the Nazi death camps as children, uh, fought against, even as young adults, fought against the, the ongoing Nazi and authoritarian movements, then survived the Soviet era. Yeah. Um, and now in their early nineties mm -hmm. are going through this terrible, terrible aggression and war and, uh, and attack on civilian life. And Maya just said, you know, I've, I've lived through these things. I've got the numbers on my arm. Um, we suffered through the Soviet regime and this, uh, last two months with Mr. Putin's aggression is worse than that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, those uh, incredible, mostly women, um, because the men that are able to fight have have gone to do that. Mm -hmm. And these women, uh, so grateful for them too, of holding down mm -hmm. their community and being so strong. Um, there's one more story that we want to get from you, and we just heard inklings of it, but it's a fabulous story of three rabbis. So at, at, at one point, um, because of the way these, these trips often run, they're just sort of messy and chaotic and full of miraculous moments. And so at one point, we were gathered at a restaurant for dinner, and realized that we had uh, not one Orthodox rabbi, not two Orthodox rabbis, but three Orthodox rabbis with us. And uh, so uh, Maurice Glassman, who's a member of parliament, who was with us on the delegation, who's also a member of the Jewish community, said, well, when you have three Orthodox rabbis, you have to present the question. And it, this is a very formulaic, uh, uh, traditional, way of engaging deep rabbinic teaching um, on any particular moment that the the student who uh, who Maurice was taking the role of the student presents a question to the rabbis and have has and then they discuss um, and so Maurice put this question to the rabbis uh, is Putin Pharaoh is Putin Pharaoh? And so in typical tradition, <laughs> one of the rabbis said, I, I would push back on the question and say, I'm not sure that Pharaoh is an individual. Perhaps we should think about Pharaoh as a system. Yeah. The other rabbi said this isn't the the question of Putin and the war is not a question of Pharaoh. This is a question of Gog and Magog. Um, so this is an apocalyptic 
uh, battle uh, between the forces of good and evil. And the third rabbi said, you know, I'm less interested in whether Putin is Pharaoh and more interested in who are the people who are moving toward liberation. Mm. And so they're just in that sh short conversation, I think you got some of the, the, the depth yeah. of the, uh, the issues and the traditions um, that are being wrestled out, right? Yeah, right now. Yeah. And what incredible... What, what incredible learning uh, that you got to be a part of these conversations and meet these incredible people on your delegation and then also obviously the people of Ukraine. Um, and again, we are just so grateful uh, for you to go and to do this work. But we do, we have one more question and maybe you do, but what, you know, what is now the next steps? Like, what was the networking that happened and the connections that were made and, and the follow-up that is inevitable out of this? So part of the reason that we went was to prove that it could be done. Uh, because there, there had been some religious delegations just crossing over the border, um, but no... Uh, interreligious international delegation had gone to to Kiev um, since the start of this war, and so we wanted to set a pattern to make it clear that it, it is possible to do these delegations, and then we we modeled public prayer services uh, that were covered by the press in the hopes that other cities uh, or other delegations to Kiev will take up a similar kind of public public uh, interreligious prayers. For, prayers for peace. Um, so I think on, on the one, one part, that was our goal, was just to mm -hmm. show that it could be done and establish a model. Um, and we were very delighted that on the bus on the way back to Warsaw, we received uh, uh, an email from the mayor's office of, of Kiev saying, here's the official letter with all the official stamps and the official signatures saying that the uh, city of Kiev will welcome these delegations, uh, will put resources uh, at, at, the, um, at the disposal of the organizers, and, uh, and that they hope the next delegation would come in a month. <laughs> um, wow. So that, that was you know, one piece yeah. that we hope will be successful, that there will be more delegations. The other piece was more just the establishing of contacts and relationships. And by the time the delegation returned to Warsaw, there were a few of us sitting around in the cafe before people were leaving for the airport. And one of our delegation got a, a phone call. Uh, it turned out it was from a Ukrainian um, government official who was trying to get 150 children and their mother or caregivers uh, out of the violence in Kharkiv. And she had been promised by a British NGO that, that the British NGO would provide visas for the children, and the visas had not arrived. And so now this government official was had 150 or 170 people sleeping on the floor of a warehouse at the border trying to get these kids and their moms um, to someplace safe. And so one of our one of our members on the delegation, was, as I said, was a member of parliament. And uh, so 
he immediately started making calls and uh, felt like he could successfully get the visas moving moving through. Now, I don't at the moment I don't know the end of that story. We'll we'll find out in the next few days um, how that story has ended. But that was just an example of the relationships already beginning to uh, to bear fruit. These are the kinds of things that can really only happen when you're on the ground. And um, what um, what a poignant um, week that you spent uh, trying to see and hear the story on the ground and lend solidarity. One thing you told us was that over and over people were surprised. Uh, Ukrainians were surprised to surprised that you all had come. Uh, what what did that feel like for you, and and what's what does that mean to you? Well, uh, on the one hand, you know we're we're people of faith. We don't have any option but to try to stop injustice by going there by with our with our uh, with our hands and our bodies. Um, and so if we can go, then then we go. Uh, and I think what what one person said, the wife of one rabbi, um, you know, she just burst into tears again when she saw us. She said, I can't believe you come. I can't believe you're actually here. You came all the way here. And and I said to her, well, the, the you know, the mayor sent his invitation in early March and now it's late May and we're just getting here. I'm sorry that we're late. And. She said, no, 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 you are not late. You have just arrived right on time because I'm afraid that the world is already forgetting about Ukraine. Mm. And so there's such value in being there in person. Mm. Um, And I just pray that the world will not forget about Ukraine. Ukraine, of course, is not the only war going on in our world, Um, but that's not that's not what we measure our compassion by. And uh, the people of Ukraine need to know that the world is supporting them and caring for them. And quite frankly, when she says the world is forgetting that, she means that literally food aid has dropped from receiving, mm. you know, 10 cargo, uh, cargo trucks uh, for a week down to two. And um, so she's saying, what do we do? you know, at the end of summer, what do we do when it gets to be winter? Uh, so please don't forget us, was her, was her plea. Well, at a time when the most, um, most Western countries can muster by way of solidarity is to send more weapons, we're so deeply grateful that you and your delegation came in the name of the great peacemaker. And thank you, Rose, for, uh, for this work and this witness, and we're glad you're home safe. Thanks so much for being with us today on this Memorial Day. Let us remember all of those under the scourge of war and all of those trying to make peace. Mm. Thank you. Amen.